and and they're excited to go. This is good news. Any adults want to go? We can offer that. Okay, let's open in a word of prayer. Oh, Lord, we just sang about the fact that you meet us all the way. Lord, you have done everything for us for salvation. And all we are asked to do is to trust you, to, to put our hope in you. And so we thank you so much, Jesus, that you have loved us in such a magnificent way. Um, Lord, I pray that we never think too lightly of that, but we always recognize the tremendous work that you've done on our behalf, that we have been so richly, deeply, and thoroughly loved. It's an amazing thing. And Lord, this morning, uh, we want to pray for uh, the LaFoon family as uh, Jim LaFoon has um, sustained a, a significant head injury and is being taken off life support. Lord, I pray that if this is the time when you call your servant home, Lord, would you let Jim cross the Jordan River with joy, anticipating the face of his Savior? And Lord, if it's his time to go now, that I pray that the family would rejoice in the life that you gave to Jim, the, the service that he rendered, and that they would mourn, but not the, as those without hope, but Lord, that they would mourn knowing that in the resurrection they will see him again. And Lord, may the whole family testify to the glory of Jesus Christ in the, the uh, life and the, in, um, the potential death of Jim. And Lord, if it is not time to call him home, then, Father, we pray that you would sustain him, revive him, and that he would uh, be able to continue to serve you faithfully. Lord, have mercy, we pray. And, Father, I want to pray for Taft Avenue Community Church in, in Orange, um, good friend church of ours. Lord, I pray for Pastor Bob this morning as he's bringing your word to the, the congregation. Lord, would you fill him with the power of the Holy Spirit to speak your truth clearly, passionately, and with conviction to the people. Lord, may they be blessed to hear the word preached, and may they all come to know and trust you more. Lord, I pray for them as they enter into uh, a, a discipline of fasting and prayer. Lord, I pray that the, the fasting and prayer that the church engages in would yield real, genuine fruit in them, that they would grow in a deeper relationship with you, greater trust in you, and that, Lord, that would enable them and empower them to share more boldly the gospel of Jesus Christ to those they know. So be with the, that congregation, we pray. And uh, Lord, we ask that you be with us now as we open your word and we study. Uh, Lord, Holy Spirit, would you please show us what your intent is? What is it that we need to hear from your word? Lord, apply it to our hearts and our minds, and may it strengthen us for service. We ask in Christ's name, amen. So we're in chapter 44. Um, last week, half the sermon was setting up for chapter 44. If you remember, that was the brothers returning to Egypt and taking Benjamin with them and all the travail they had to go through to get him down there. And so the portion that Jim read this morning kind of recounted that story one more time. This is how they had to really beg their father, look, we can't go back to Egypt unless Benjamin is with us. And so what we saw was Benjamin went with them and this really strange thing happened when they met with Joseph and he put him at tables to eat lunch. They were in birth order. And that was kind of, what's going on here? And then even more, at the very end, we saw that Joseph gave food to these brothers from his table, but to Benjamin, he gave five times as much. You probably couldn't see the guy from behind the pile of food in front of him because it's five times as much as his brothers. Where that left us last chapter was Joseph is, is working towards a purpose with his brothers. And so what he's done is he has set up Benjamin 
to be the one that they're jealous of again. They already know that Benjamin is dad's favorite. Now they come to Egypt and they see he appears to be favorite amongst this governor of Egypt, this most powerful man. And so he's setting them up because what he's going to do is he's going to repeat what happened to himself. The youngest, they're jealous of the youngest. They have opportunity to put the youngest in peril. But the great thing about this is Joseph is so smart, he's so clever. If they are not changed, if they are the same men they were 20-something years ago when they sold him into slavery, Benjamin is safe because where he will be surrendered to is Joseph's hands. And that way, Joseph can look to his brothers and say, okay, I understand where you're at, and I know how we're going to lead you. I know how I need to, to, to be over top of you because this is where you're at. Um, what we see today is that test. We'll begin to see that test unfold. How do they treat Benjamin? So the outline for this sermon is probably the worst outline I've ever written for a sermon. I promise. The first point is, what about Benjamin? The second point is, what about Benjamin? And then the third point is, how can you tell? There's no symmetry. It doesn't have any kind of you know ring to it. It's just that's the way it came out. So that's what we're going to go with. What about Benjamin? What about Benjamin? And how can you tell? So the, the beginning part is how it all gets set up. So they've had dinner with Joseph. The next morning, they're getting ready to head back to the promised land. So Joseph tells the steward of the house, fill the men's sacks with the food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. So same thing happened last time is remember they returned with the original money they brought and then twice as much. So now they're going home with three times as much money because Joseph won't take their money. So that's, that's what winds up in their bags. But he goes further this time, and he says, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the youngest with his money in the grain. And so they, they did what Joseph told them. So this is how Joseph is setting up Benjamin to be in peril, because they've hidden that cup in his bag. So what comes next is they take off, and Joseph tells his, his servant, now go catch up to him and accuse them. Tell them that somebody has stole the cup. And so that's what he does. He catches up to them, and they are just incredulous. They have done everything right. They, they begged their father to bring Benjamin down. They got Simeon out of jail. This just was the best trip ever. We've got enough food. We got our brothers. We're going to return home. Dad's going to be so happy. And so then when the steward comes up and says, hang on, somebody stole my master's silver cup, they're just like, absolutely not. That's not even possible. Why would we do that? As a matter of fact, their argument is, look, we brought all the money we originally had, and we brought it back. Why would we steal a silly, stupid, a silly silver cup if we had all this money? We're, we're, we're just trying to show you we're honest and good men. And so the steward's like, no, we're not buying it. One of you has got it. So they said, okay, well, let's search. And so what happens is each man takes the bags off their mules or off their asses or their donkeys or whatever they had. They take it off, and they start going through. But again... The servant goes through in birth order. So those guys' confidence must have been building as they open up Reuben's bag and they look in and go, yep, nothing in there. And they keep going and they keep going. And they look in Levi, see nothing? Obviously, it's not Benjamin. And then they open the last bag. And there's the cup. There's Benjamin with the cup. How on earth did this happen? So what should have happened was they arrested Benjamin and brought him back, and the brothers could leave. And this is where the test, this is where the whole thing kind of comes together, and this is that first question, what about Benjamin? 
How are the brothers going to respond to Benjamin? At this point, they could have sold him down the river, right? They could have went, hey, dude, I don't know why you stole it. We're out of here. Bye. And then go back and tell dad, sorry. It wasn't our fault. He stole. They could have done that, couldn't they? But what we're seeing here, the promise here is these are changed men. Something has happened to these guys along the way. Before, remember 20-something years ago, they had no concern for their father. They deceived him. They tore up Joseph's coat and brought it back to their father and said, yeah, man, he's, he's gone. Sorry, dude. And they lived with that. But now they're, they're at that point again where Joseph has set them up. You could, you could turn on the youngest at this point, and you could sit, go home and just explain to dad, well, sorry, you lost another one. But these are different men, and they won't do it. And so what it says is they tore their clothes, every man, they loaded their donkey, and they returned to the city. What about Benjamin? The brothers aren't leaving without him. That is an amazing thing that's just happened. It's easy to blow past it, but it really is changed life. There is something different about these guys. So one of the things that, that I've asked myself about this section is why does Moses repeat so much in it? Why does he include so much detail? Why does he work so hard at Joseph's story in, in the telling of it? Why not summarize some of this? And I think what's going on is he's, he's teaching Israel a lesson. Remember, my, my theory is he's telling Israel who their God is and who they are. And with Joseph's story, he's saying, you're not slaves. You were brought in as celebrated guests. I think before we get to that point where they're brought in as celebrated guests, what he's showing us is God is working to protect his covenant. He made a covenant with Abraham. And in Abraham, he said, your, your offspring will be as numerous as the stars. They will come back. They will inherit the promised land. They'll be in captivity for 400 years in a land that's not their own. And from them, someone in your seed, one of those offspring, will be a blessing to the nations. And so what Moses is laboring to show them here is not just, this is why you went into Egypt, but he's laboring to show them, I will remain faithful to my covenant. So it's not sufficient for God to just kind of wrangle these, these wretched sinners in a kind of a hopeful direction. That's not how he treats his people. He wants his people to be able to walk with him in integrity. And so when we see these men tear their garments, a sign of mourning, load their donkeys back up, turn around and head right back into the city, what you see here is God's faithfulness to his covenant. He has been working in these men's lives to bring them to this point. And so that, that's where we find them. So what about Benjamin? Benjamin is not thrown under the bus. Benjamin is not sold down the river. He is the, the linchpin in this test, and they remain faithful. So the next, what about Benjamin? So what happens next is Judah and his brothers come to Joseph's house and they fall down on the ground before him. Does that sound familiar? The brothers bowing down. Last time it was 10 brothers bowing down. And what happened was they went there, they thought they were just going to get grain. They had no history with him at this point. So when they bowed down, it was that first dream that he had. Remember, the first dream was his sheaves stood up and their sheaves all bowed down. That was that first dream. Now the second dream, what was the second dream? The second dream was, I had a dream that 11 stars bowed down to me and the sun and the moon. And that had this idea more, not so much about providing food, but authority and rule. The stars of the heavens are, are magnificent, high things. 
and the family is seen that way and they will bow down. And so that's what happens is now they have fulfilled that second prophecy. They bowed down to Joseph in his authority as the ruler, because when they came back this time, it wasn't asking for food. They had the food. They're coming back and asking for mercy because Benjamin has stole from them. So they're now under his legal authority, not just his, his authority over the food that they could eat. So they fall down on the ground before them. And Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Did you not know that a man like me can practice divination? So one of the questions that comes up, a little bit of a canard here, but we got to do it. Did, you, did Joseph practice divination? I don't know. One of the things we got to remember is Moses hasn't given us the law yet. This is, this is 400 years before Moses. So it's not like Joseph heard God tell him, don't practice divination, and he went out and did it anyway. It's, potential, it's possible that Joseph could have practiced divination, and God answered him through that, though we have really no evidence of that. What's more than likely is, why did he have the silver cup? His father-in-law probably gave it to him. His father-in-law was a priest of On. And so it's more than likely that, you know, that, hey, here's a wedding gift. Here's my cup for divination. And Joseph, oh, thank you very much, and put it on the shelf. Dust it once in a while. It may be that Joseph never practiced divination, that he just used the cup as a tool. We don't know because it doesn't say. As a matter of fact, Joseph is really kind of elliptical about this, isn't he? He says, don't you know that a guy like me could? Did you think you were going to steal my cup? Now, the other question is, wait a minute, Joseph, time out. If you use your cup for divination and Joseph stole your cup, how would you practice divination? Because your cup's missing. So that's kind of an issue, too. But that's not the point. What he's done is he's, he's telling them in a way that they'll understand. He says to them, you guys, I, I know what you're up to. I can know what you're up to through supernatural means. It is possible for me to find out exactly what you've done. Don't you know a man like me could practice divination? Supernaturally, God could reveal to me exactly what you've done. And so that's, that's where he sets them up. That's where he brings them to this crux. He's not quite done with them yet. He's got to see if they'll take the next step. And now Judas speaks for everybody. So at this point, they all bow down. Joseph addresses them, but then Judah stands up and he starts speaking. Now, it could be that Judah is assuming a leadership role. He's, he's recognized that Reuben has kind of been dethroned. He, he did some bad stuff. And so maybe Judah is trying to step up and take the, the leadership role in the family. That's a possibility. It could be that they all kind of addressed him at different times. And Moses just uses this as a literary tool because can you imagine how, how hard it would be to follow if Reuben said this and Joseph said that and you know this back and forth between all of them. So he just puts Judah up as kind of a, here's the guy that's doing the speaking. This could actually be a little bit prophetic because what we're gonna find out is when, when dad blesses his sons, he tells Judah the, the scepter will never depart from between the feet of Judah. Judah will be the tribe from which all the, the kings come. And so this could be almost prophetic as Judah is acting like the king and he's, he's stepping up and he's speaking for, quote unquote, his people. That's a possibility too. Um, but whatever it is, when Judah speaks, what we need to hear is him speaking on behalf of his family, on his brothers. In the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, religion was much more communal. Family was much more. So when Judah stands up and he says, oh, my Lord, I, what he really means is we. He's, he's representing them all. That's what's going on with him. So Judah stands up and he says, 
What shall we say to my Lord and what shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Now, that is really the crux of the issue right there. That is a little bit looser of a translation. If Jim had read this part in the NASB, that's the Bible he uses, what he would have said would be, and now how can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. And really, isn't that the question? How can we justify ourselves when God has found out the iniquity? How can we justify ourselves? How can we prove to, to you or how can we make ourselves be righteous now? God has found out our iniquity. They sold 20-something years ago, 23, 25 years ago, they sold their brother into slavery. They threw him in a pit because they were going to kill him. How can we justify ourselves? And then Judah steps forward and says, you know, there's no benefit in just killing the little guy. Why don't we sell him into slavery? We get a little money out of it. We get rid of him. We, it's a win-win situation. How can we justify ourselves? Judah then goes off and has children who are so wicked, they are so evil, God kills them. How can we justify ourselves? Judah then goes off with a cult prostitute, with a woman who's going to worship by having sex with him. How can we justify ourselves? And then it turns out this is my daughter-in-law because I have ripped her off. I have not given her my youngest son. And Judah says, she is more righteous than I am. How can we justify ourselves? And then the brothers maintain the lie for 22 years. They have lied. They have deceived their father. He has no hope of ever seeing his son again. And they've maintained that lie to this point. How can we justify ourselves? Do you see where God has led them? He, this is what that sin will do to you. Unconfessed sin will sit on you like a brick. It will weigh you down. But with God's people, God's not content to leave you in that situation. So have you ever read The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne? Hester Preen gets pregnant, an unmarried woman, and there's a scandal in the town. It's a Puritan town, and they just it's a scandal. So she has to wear a big red A on her chest for adulteress. But the story, the way that Nathaniel Hawthorne tells the story is Hester has to deal with the weight of that as the society kind of looks down on her and treats her bad, but she stands firm. She stands up for herself, and she takes care of her daughter Pearl, and she is wearing her sin on her chest. But the man who got her pregnant, nobody will know who it is. Well, we know by the end of the story. It's Reverend Dimsdale, the most revered preacher in town. And at the end of the, the Scarlet Letter, what you see is Hester Preen standing strong, and Reverend Dimsdale needs to be led up to the podium. When he preaches, he practically collapses. The sin that he has not repented of, that he's not confessed, has eaten him alive inside. He's nuffed until he stands up and he says, seven years ago, I should have been on this stage next. He also, I don't think, had a really, a really good theology of how this works. God would not let Reverend Dimsdale, if he is actually God's person, go that long unrepentant. God would not have just abandoned him to his sin and let it eat him alive. God would have led him to repentance. How can I say that? That's what God has done to them here. It's been 22 years. It's much longer than poor Reverend Dimsdale. But God has brought them. He's been working in their lives, 
carefully and methodically because God is faithful to his people and will lead them to repentance. How can we justify ourselves? God has found out our sin. See, the problem with the, red, the scarlet letter is the sin was against Hester Preen and against the city, but it wasn't against God. The problem with this is these men have sinned against God. Now, hold on for a second. They sold Joseph into slavery and they lied to their, bro- their father. They broke his heart. How is it that they sinned against God? Well, when David slept with Bathsheba and then killed her husband in battle to cover his sin, and then Nathan came and called him out on it, he wrote a psalm. And his response, that's how David processed things, is he would write poetry. He processed it by saying, oh Lord, against you and against you only have I sinned. Really? What about Bathsheba and Uriah, the Hittite? Didn't you sin against them? What David is saying, what these guys are saying is, my sin has broken these other people. I have done wrong to these other folks, but ultimately my sin is against God. And that's why they look at at Joseph here and they say, how can we justify ourselves? God has found out our guilt. Yes, they sinned against Joseph. Yes, they sinned against Jacob, but ultimately sinned against God. Because who built that family? God built that family. God put Joseph in that family. God put his, his 11 brothers in that family. God put Jacob as the head of the covenant family. So to come in and say, well, we don't like, Lord, the way you put this covenant family together, therefore we're going to eliminate the portion we don't like, is a sin against God. It it is a violation of his covenant. His covenant with Abraham said, I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars. In his infinite wisdom, he said, Jacob will have 12 sons. They will grow into the 12 tribes of Israel. And from one of these tribes will come my chosen one, the seed that will bless the nations. So to try to eliminate part of that, to begin to turn against each other in that covenant family is to sin against God. That's the problem here is they they recognize now, Lord, you haven't let us go. This famine didn't happen by accident. Joseph didn't wind up in charge of, of all of the food in the known world by accident. Lord, you have led us to this point. And so what you see here now is this godly grief. How can we justify ourselves? God knows what we did. But what comes next is not trying to cover or explain away or or do a song and dance and say, well, it wasn't really that bad. What they do is they own their guilt. He says, behold, we we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. They didn't throw Benjamin under the bus. They didn't let him go. These men are changed men. And Joseph says, hey, wait, far be it from me that I should do that. Only the man in whose, whose uh, possession it was found shall be my servant, but the rest of you guys can go to your father in peace. So the, the brothers now are all heartbroken. They are all weighted down with their sin. They're caught out. But what about Benjamin? Did Benjamin need to repent of any of this? Did Benjamin sell his brother into slavery? Have we seen Benjamin do anything wrong in any of this? He's been pretty innocent through the whole thing, just kind of an innocent bystander. But what about Benjamin? If God is faithful to his brothers to lead them to brokenness, to confession, to repentance, what about Benjamin? 
There's a, a man who wrote a, a series of devotionals on the stories of Genesis, and in it he tells a story and he drops the Benjamin, the cup was found in Benjamin's bag thing in the middle of it. So if it sounds like I just kind of like stuttered, that's the way it's written. So let me read this story to you. He says, a preacher of the gospel was once speaking to an old Scotswoman who was commonly regarded as one of the most devout and respectable people in that part of the country. He was impressing on her her need of Christ. At last, with tears in her eyes, she said, Oh, sir, I have never missed a Sabbath at the Kirk. I have read my Bible every day, and I have prayed and done good deeds to my neighbors, and I have done all that I know I ought to do. And now do you mean to tell me that it must all go for nothing? He answered, Well, You've chose, you have to choose between trusting in these and trusting in the redemption which God offers you in Christ. You cannot have both. If you are content to part company with your own righteousness, the Lord will give you his. But if you cling to your Bible studying and Sabbath keeping and good deeds, the Lord's righteous cannot be yours. It was quite a spectacle, he said afterward, to see the old woman's face. The cup was found in Benjamin's sack. For some time, she sat in silence, her elbows on the table, her face buried in her hands. A great struggle was going on within. At length, the tears began to stream from her eyes, and lifting up her clenched hands to heaven, she cried out, Oh, my God, they shall all gain for nothing. In a moment more, she cast herself on her knees and accepted the Lord Jesus as her savior. It is when the cup is found in Benjamin's sack that he too is brought to the feet of Jesus. So do you see how Benjamin needed to come to that place also? He had no sin. We don't see him doing anything wrong. But to not have sin doesn't equal to have righteousness. We need to have Christ's righteousness. So we can look at the brothers and go, oh, man, I can't believe how terrible they were. Look at what horrible things they did. But the question we have to ask ourselves is how can we justify ourselves? Will we justify ourselves with, as the old woman did, Sabbath keeping and Bible study and prayer and good deeds? Or will we, try, or will we justify ourselves by saying, I trust in Christ's perfect righteousness. What about Benjamin? What about us? We're not as bad as they are. But don't ever let that fool you into thinking that's good enough. What about Benjamin? And I say, what about Benjamin at this point is how many stars bowed down to Joseph? persecuted and rejected by his brothers and yet risen to a power a place of authority and savior of the whole world and so even good righteous nice guy Benjamin needs to come and fall down at the feet of Joseph as well and so do we how will we justify ourselves that's why we have to ask what about Benjamin and when you do think what about Benjamin what about me so that's that, that place where they are now, is, is they are broken men. Now, how do you know? How do we know that they have actually changed? Again, we're going to continue with what, um, what 
Judah is saying on behalf of his brothers. And listen to how different this man is. This is the part that, that uh, Jim read this morning. He recounts the story about his father. And in that, if you listen carefully, I love the way Jim read it. If you listen carefully, what you hear is genuine, godly concern for my father. Oh, sir, we can't return to my father without the boy. It will kill him. We can't do that. Don't ask us to do that. Please. And then in this, this most Christ-like picture, this most Christ-like action, Judas says, I have given my life for surety for my brother. Take me and release Benjamin back to his father. So how do you know these men have repented and they've changed? They are willing to go this far to own their sin. But they don't just feel embarrassed that their sin got caught out. They don't feel like they didn't cover it well enough. They're not trying to, to, to lie and cover it some more. Instead, they own it. And, and what Judah has just said on behalf of his brothers is, we are so guilty that we will go to prison instead of him because it would be too much for him and it would kill my father. Please send him back and we will take it because we deserve it anyway. We know what we've done. God's found out our guilt. Our guilt is not bringing Benjamin down here. Our guilt is sending you here. And God has found out our guilt. So put us in prison. Let us take his place because we deserve it and he doesn't. So this is how you know what godly repentance looks like is no more excuses, no more covering, no more saying it was something that, that was beyond my control. Godly repentance is, you're right, I'm wrong and I'll face the consequences for it. And the reason that they can face the consequences for it, the reason we can face the consequences for it is because Jesus Christ has borne the eternal consequences for it. We can bear the temporal ones. Because Jesus has carried away the debt, the burden that we had, so that when he says, Father, I will take their place, let them return, then they can come back. We can come back. We can say, Lord, you've borne the eternal weight of everything that's wrong with what I've done. And now we're set free to try to live after him, to, to, to follow after who Jesus Christ is. That's real repentance. It's not embarrassment at being caught. It is back to what he said. How do we justify ourselves? God has found out our sin. Repentance is not, I'm afraid that my neighbors will think poorly of me. It is, I have offended a most holy and beautiful God. And that's where these men are. This is where God has faithfully walked them to. He has taken them to this point. And the chapter ends, and I want to preach the next chapter. <laughs> because what happens is Joseph gets it. He sees this. He recognizes that, that this is what's happened. The great thing about this is this is God's faithfulness in his covenant to his family. He will lead his people to this place. He did it that long ago. So why does, does um, Moses give so much detail to this part of the story? Why does he repeat it so often? Because Israel needs to know that. They need to know that God will provide for them. He will lead them to repentance. That the sacrificial system is not to be a crutch. It's not to be something that you just fall back on regularly. Ah, I messed up again. Let me, let me go kill a goat. But 
It is to recognize how will you be justified even with the law, even with the sacrificial system, how will you be justified when God has found out your guilt? To draw them to that same place of godly repentance. That's the hope. That's the picture. Before we get to the good news, go get your dad and bring him down here. We don't get there yet. We've got to deal with the sin first. And then they come into the promised land. So when we read this, we need to see Joseph as a type of Christ. He's, he's figuring as a Christ figure in this. And ask yourself, am I an older brother or a younger brother to Joseph in this? And I think it's interesting because this really sets the prodigal son parable on its head. The prodigal was the bad guy who went off and, and did everything. The older brother is the guy who, hey, I've been here serving you the whole time. And this kind of is the other way around, is the older brothers, older than Joseph, are the bad guys. And the good one, who's never done anything wrong, is younger. So if we want to find our position in this story, ask yourself, are you the older brothers or the younger brother? You're not Joseph, OK? I'll just put that out there. None of us are Joseph in this story. <laughs> so what do you need to repent of? What is it that you need to come to the Lord and say, Lord, you know my sin? Is it? A sin that you've been buried for years, that you've been trying to hide under, under blankets for a long time? Or is it your own stinking righteousness? Your own obedience? The, the idea that I look to this and say, Lord, I, I had a wonderful Bible study today. Therefore, my day should go well because you should be pleased with me because I did this. So which, one, which, which category do you fit into? Older brothers, younger brother? That, that's the application of this. Either way, we all 11 fall down at the feet of Joseph. But we don't fall down as slaves. We don't fall down as uh, filthy rags or, or broken crutches. What we fall down as stars, stars of the heavens. Because we are in God's covenant family, he will escalate us. He will elevate us. In Jesus Christ, we are adopted as children. So our stars, we bow down as stars in the heavens. The fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham's offspring will be as numerous as the stars. I'm so tempted to say we're all stardust, but that would be corny. So I won't say that. But we are all stars. We're all in that, that constellation of the covenant promise to Abraham brought to fruition in Jesus Christ. And so that's why we bow down. Let's pray.